0: This is the Sex and Psychology Podcast, and it's the sex ed you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. What is it like to be a sex worker? It depends who you ask. If you look at what the research says, it can be confusing because there are so many contradictory takes with some studies pointing to largely negative outcomes and others to largely positive outcomes. It's a literature where there's sometimes a bit of ideology baked in, which leads some researchers to select samples that are going to yield results that support their pre-existing views on sex work. The truth is that you can't paint sex workers in overly broad strokes. In the course of my own research, I've spoken with many sex workers and their experiences are highly variable. There are some who chose this line of work and absolutely love it. There are others who felt like they didn't have any other choice and had awful experiences and there are yet others who report a mix of both positive and negative experiences this makes sense because sex work means a lot of different things and working conditions and local laws are drastically different which necessarily means that different workers are bound to have very different experiences so let's talk about sex work in today's episode we're going to talk about what it means to be a sex worker common reasons for entering the profession the positive and negative sides of sex work and more i am joined today by kurt fowler an assistant professor of criminal justice at penn state abington he is the author of the new book the rise of digital sex work drawing on in-depth interviews with dozens of sex workers from around the world this book explores how technology has changed the nature of modern sex work this is going to be a fascinating conversation stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break If you're a fan of this show, then I know you're hungry for sexuality knowledge. But if you're also looking to find a community of like-minded, sex-positive professionals, check out the Sexual Health Alliance. Shaw connects you with world-class experts and an active group of passionate, fun, and welcoming students. Shaw is at the forefront of sexuality education and hosts monthly live events, both online and in-person, with students from all over the world and from all types of backgrounds. They come together to learn, travel, connect, and sometimes form friendships. So, podcast fans, continue advancing your sexuality knowledge, have fun, and meet fantastic people in the process at Sexual Health Alliance. You can find their upcoming events and online certification programs at sexualhealthalliance.com. Hi, Kurt, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology podcast.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: It's a pleasure to have you here. So we're going to be diving into your book, The Rise of Digital Sex Work, today. But before we get into it, I wanted to ask for your definition of sex work and what all it encompasses. And I ask this because different people define terms like sex work and prostitution in different ways. Sometimes the definition is pretty broad and expansive. Sometimes it's pretty narrow. Also, different people prefer different terms. And some people who do sex work don't consider themselves to be sex workers or identify as such. So when you're talking about sex work, what are you referring to?
1: That's an excellent question. And it's one I get relatively frequently. And I almost always get it after I've been talking with people for a while because they're like, wait, you're describing a whole bunch of different activities here. And it's like, yeah, uh, because... Technically and frankly, you know, sex work can be literally almost anything. Uh, the way it's defined for the book is any exchange of uh, sexual gratification for any form of remuneration. So as long as the two people or two or more people who are involved in the exchange are aware of what is being exchanged, I consider that sex work for the auspices of the book. But I would say that, yeah, the acknowledgement of the worker saying, I'm doing this so I can bring sexual gratification to another person, then that is sex work. Now, that obviously encompasses a whole load of illegal and illegal deviant and stigmatized and non-deviant and non-stigmatized behaviors, or even behaviors that could be considered quote-unquote normative, but... They're put into a sexual scenario. Uh, Like one of my favorite ones uh, when I was researching was somebody who did, they were a, a fetish model and did what was called pedal pumping. And it took her 10 minutes of explanation for me to understand what the hell was going on, which was that she not even wearing anything particularly tantalizing or anything like that would try and start an old car. Like she would literally try. That was her fetish expertise was starting old cars. And I had that same question in conversation with her. And I said, like, well, do you consider that sex work? I mean, you're literally just trying to get a car to turn over. And she was like, look, somebody somewhere wants this and they want it for that reason. So I am now she also had a long history of fetish work and was somebody who you know was well-versed. And she was like, so I absolutely consider it. But yeah, so how do I define sex work? Well, the long and short of it is it doesn't matter what I define sex work as, it matters what they define sex work as. And yeah, and I wanted to purposefully, during my research, keep that door as wide open as possible so I could get as many different kinds of experiences as I could get. So yeah, most people, when you say sex work, they think escorting. But- that is not the case. Like so many people are engaging in sexual commerce on a variety of levels and different ways of doing it that, you know, I like keeping it broad. And I think that the advantage of keeping it broad is you get a ton of different takes and you get a ton of different hilarious stories (laughs) from people (laughs) about the ways in which they've engaged with and in sexual commerce. Thanks
0: for sharing that. It is certainly a term that can mean a lot of different things. And your answer also goes to show that people can have fetishes for virtually anything.
1: One worker put it, there's literally a market for anybody and anything on the internet. So if you're buying, somebody's selling. Like, that's, that's the front and back of it.
0: So before we get into the book, let me first ask for the brief story behind it. So how did you get interested in researching sex work in the first place? And why did you decide to write a whole book on the subject?
1: So much of of qualitative research, narrative style research, is dependent on being curious. In my opinion, the best narrative researchers go in knowing nothing about a topic and coming out and on the other, other side as an expert. I went in knowing nothing. I was going to a crime convention where I was talking about police patrols or or, or something like that. It wasn't an exciting trip for me. And I made it to the airport only to realize that I hadn't confirmed my flight because I am the absent-minded professor through and through. (laughs) So I got a text from a friend that was like, hey, do you want to grab drinks? And I was normally a very busy graduate student at the time. And no, I I never had any time for drinks. And then suddenly I had a chunk of time free because I wasn't going to this conference anymore because I had failed to confirm my plane ticket. And so she said, well, great. Well, let's meet down at the kill time. We'll have a couple cocktails. We'll catch up. And which was wonderful. And I was like, yes, I will absolutely do that. And I show up uh, to one of my favorite dance nights in the city, you know, with my friend who I've known for a long time. And she, she said, I just, you know, I got this new job and I have some questions. And a lot of my friends would message me in the middle of like NCIS to go, is that real? You know, because they knew I was a criminologist. And I would go, no, don't worry, it's not real. <laughs> that was bad. I could have just you know, pasted that answer over and over again. No, it's not real. And she said, yeah, no, I have some crime questions because I have this new job and I am an escort and I went oh and that is actually the correct response if anyone ever tells you they're a sex worker it because any other response other than polite curiosity comes off really weird. Um, if you're like, oh, how, how horrible. They're like, yeah, no, that's bad. And if you come up like, that's great. Like, that's also a little bit off. Uh, so, yeah, going, oh, why don't you tell me more? And so uh, she said, well, I just I need to know, like, kind of how illegal is it really? Like, what are the penalties? Am I in any danger? And I didn't know. Because all I had known when it comes to sex work was maybe a couple chapters in a criminology textbook and watching Pretty Woman, like, in the 90s. Uh, So I had no clue. And I said, well, let me dive into some research and see if I can get some answers to your questions. So that's what I started to do. And when I came back to her, I said, things are very different than I thought they would be. Like, first of all, most sex work research previously ties sex work to drug abuse and other bad situations. And the few pieces that don't talk about that stuff had a very different outlook. And so as soon as I realized that the outlook was so different, I said, do you know anybody else in this line of work? And she was like, yeah, no, I do. And so I said, would you introduce them to me? And she said, I'd love to. So that's how I got it started. And even once I was starting, like I was still going, is this something I should be doing? Like, again, somebody with no, you know, preconceived knowledge of this thing, you delve into the methods textbooks, you delve into other people's work, and you realize, actually, no, you're actually in in a, as someone going in with a neutral attitude, you're actually someone who is really primed and ready to do this kind of work. And so I find it easy to talk to people. I've been in bands you know, and I've been a punk for my whole life. So like being around deviants is nothing new to me and is actually quite normal and good to me. So I was like, maybe I'm the person to be talking to everyone. So that's how I started. I started by asking her to introduce me to her network of people that she knows and then that network eventually spread. And then I had so much data that I was like, I can't, this isn't a paper. You know, this is a whole book. And again, what people were describing was so different from what I culturally expected that, yeah, hell yeah. Let's write a book about this and tell all of your stories because these are actually funny and interesting and evocative and still timely and important, but delivered in such a different way than what we're used, quote unquote, used to when it comes to sex work research, which is so much of like, oh, the horrors. You know, this was oh, the weirdness was more the the kind of the theme for the book.
0: Right. I mean, I'm familiar with the literature on sex work. And it's because I teach study abroad courses on sex and culture. And a big part of what we talk about when we travel to other countries is sex work. And sometimes we talk to sex workers themselves. And hearing about this from people who actually work in the business is very different from reading the literature. So in your book, you talk about how there's really two kinds of main paradigms that you're going to see in the research you've got the oppression paradigm which you know basically says that sex work is inherently victimizing and it conflates all forms of sex work with sex trafficking and then on the other hand you have the empowerment paradigm which takes a very different lens and angle and so I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that tell us about these two views and how both of them are kind of extreme and lacking and how we should be thinking about sex work instead
1: this is great because when I was going through the book process, actually one of the editors was like, I think you need to pare down the section about oppression and empowerment, because you know, this has been the theme, you know, for the research for so many years that I, I don't think you really need to rehash it. And I disagreed, you know, heavily because I was like, readers and anybody who is interested in this needs to understand that there has been this ongoing conflict between how do we frame this, the traditional frame is sex work is bad. And not only is it bad, it's harmful to everyone involved, it's it's exploitative on every level and nobody can enter it agentically and it has this rich history that goes all the way back to like the man Act where you couldn't escort a woman between state lines because that that could be perceived as trafficking. And like that's where the entire trafficking versus sex work argument actually even started. So yeah, this oppression paradigm has a lot of history behind it and that you know so much of research is precedent and so it's like well this is how my forebearers uh framed the argument so i should frame it this way as well and so you have plenty of new research that's also this is all bad and it's associated with bad things and there's uh trafficking and there's drug abuse and there's abuse but rarely do you hear you know the flip side of the coin now in the 80s You know, a new set of researchers came along, largely empowered by community again. Uh, Call off your old tired ethics. You know, Coyote was one of the first pro-sex worker organizations. And it's important to acknowledge that they were framing their positive aspects by using community. And so those pro-sex worker advocates started to form a new paradigm. And that was an empowerment paradigm, that this act, the act of agentically doing sex work is a poke in the eye of the of the patriarchy it's a reappropriation of female sexuality and the power that undergirds it now just to be clear really quickly sex work can be done by men women and everybody in between but mainly it has been framed as a women's issue and when they do the research and when they write the research and use an empowerment paradigm you know they say hey if a person is choosing to do this Then there are good and positive aspects of it. But if someone isn't choosing it, then that's bad. Now, largely what the, it's the difference between kind of a personal take on sex work and like a sociological take. But my lens was much more of a workplace ethnography lens where, because so, for so long, the rallying cry has been that sex work is work but yet so few researchers have examined it like work. And so I was just like, well, there's plenty of these workplace ethnographies where people go into a workplace and they say, what's the culture of this place? How does it impact the workers? How does it impact their feelings about the work? Um, How does it impact the trajectory of their career? And I just used those kind of very agnostic work style frameworks and said, I don't really have... A horse in this game other than people's agency so tell me about your job um, and that is what differentiates my research from these old oppression and empowerment paradigms now if i had to choose obviously i would choose the empowerment one because it's empowering let's be honest but the empowerment paradigm runs into some trouble when it's like all that hey this is true of everyone anytime anybody engages in sex work it's a poke in the eye of the patriarchy and it's like okay that's good but what about things like manipulation? What about things like coercion or just lack of agency and choice? And so I was very sure in my work to not just make it 200 pages of cheerleading, right? Like it had to be 200 pages of discussion about your job and whether or not you found your job to be remunerative, whether you found your job to be empowering, enlightening, helpful, good, bad, in the middle, neutral. Plenty of workers talk about that. So when it comes to this paradigm of, is it good, is it bad? What we find is, with like with most things, it's about context. It's not about a behavior having an inherent goodness or badness.
0: Yeah, and I appreciate the nuanced take that you have on this in the book, because Just like any other job, you know, it's a mix of both good and bad things. There's a lot of individual variability and there's a lot of factors that affect why someone might choose to go into the profession. And so just because it's a choice doesn't necessarily mean that it's the thing that they want to be doing because they might not feel like they have other options. So, you know, it's a complicated issue to discuss in a lot of ways
1: ask any professor if they enjoy every aspect of their job. And you will find, no, they do not enjoy, I, I do not enjoy every aspect of my job. No. But yet, overall, I found that I have chosen it and that I find, find it rewarding. Yeah. And that is, for at least for now, for me, good enough. Yeah.
0: You know, I did choose to be a college professor, but <laughs> the longer I spent working in that area and having to sit on like the faculty senate in- and <laughs> Are you about like where faculty members get to park on campus? I was like, I'm I'm out. Like (laughs) that's a big part of why I left. I chose that profession, but
1: I'm literally missing a faculty meeting right now (laughs) to be here with you. (laughs) And I couldn't be happier about it. Oh, faculty
0: meetings. (laughs) So your work focuses a lot on digital sex work, which can obviously take a lot of different forms, such as providing dirty talk on the phone, working on a camming site, selling pre-recorded nude videos or photos. But the key distinguishing factor is that they're usually not having direct contact with clients. Now, certainly some do offer that as an additional service, but many prefer to work exclusively in digital spaces. So tell us a little bit about what you learned in terms of why people might be drawn to digital sex work. What are some of the more common reasons or motivations?
1: The reason that people are more drawn to digital sex work, and I use the term digital sex work to include anything that has a digital component. So, as you said, like, yeah, even an escort who has a website and booking software, they would count. Now, the reason that people are drawn to it is autonomy, and that autonomy is relatively new, right? Like, we all have the cultural image of a sex worker in our head, Melissa Gear Grant. Bless her work. She is a wonderful researcher and journalist, and she has this great quote that I'm going to butcher right now, but it's along the lines of, we all have this image in our head of a sex worker, and it's somebody who's leaning into a car. Maybe they have on high heels. Maybe there's a mini skirt, but you never really see their face, and you never hear their story, and I love that quote because it encapsulates that difference between the reality of a worker's day-to-day life and the cultural impression. So the cultural impression is that there is no choice here. There is no agency here that this is done out of desperation. And it's a last, it's a last resort. And it's a street corner style work. No, even the escorts that I talked to who do in person with clients talked about how essential digital technology has been to their work because it keeps them safer. That was the thing. What is drawing people to digital sex work? It's the ability to do the work but in a safe environment, that's what it is. Because almost everybody I talked to said, it wasn't the work that was keeping me from doing sex work, it was the ostensible danger. And once I learned that that danger could be mitigated, then I was like, okay, I'm ready to do this. And so, so many workers who use digital technology are doing it because they say, I consume this, this media, why can't I make this media? And if I can get paid well to make this media, of course I should make it because I have nothing against the production of the media. I have nothing against images of myself or exposing myself. What I have against is somebody trying to hurt me, you know, someone trying to take my money and someone trying to limit my options and choices. And so what draws people is this idea that, Hey, once you have a computer, And you have access to the internet, you can be your own business owner. Now, there is obviously a much deeper and richer conversation to have here about like platforms, how much money they take, who's running those platforms, you know, what workers are allowed to and not allowed to do on specific platforms. And when I talked to workers about those issues, they had lots of opinions about that as well, mainly wanting worker-owned and worker-run platforms and businesses that they could work for, like, you know, the, the peripheral businesses. They preferred to work with either existing or previous workers or just women in general. But when it comes to what draws them, it's being able to do it in a way in which they get to keep the lion's portion of the money. They get to do it safely, and they're not judged or stigmatized by doing it because, hey, they're making bank. I mean, it's, I can't help it. I'm a criminologist. Like one of the early and most popular criminological theories, strain theory by Robert Merton was all about how money often dictates our relationship to crime. My favorite part of that theory though, is once you have the money, people don't really question how you got it. So, because money is the great equalizer. So as long as the workers are being paid in money that outweighs having a shitty job, (laughs) they're going to do it especially if agency is coming from their direction. It's the combo of agency, more money than a crappy job, and some semblance of security that they have control over.
0: Now, since you mentioned safety and security is one of the things that draws people to digital sex work, I want to talk about that a little bit more because some people who go down that route precisely because they think it's going to be safer than working in person, sometimes they find that there are risks that they didn't anticipate. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the unique risks of digital sex work and some of the ways that workers might go about mitigating those risks?
1: So one of the more interesting stories I heard uh, for the book was of a worker who was being stalked online someone had gotten access to her private email account and was sending pictures and, you know, exchanges to jobs, family members, friends, like they were able to get a sense of who their community was and basically began to forcibly digitally out them in this community. And she said, I never you know, I follow all of the rules on all of the kind of, you know, the stay safe online rules, you know, change your password, like dual factor authentication, all that kind of stuff. And she said, and yet still somehow somebody managed to weave their way in there and cause her harm. And so, yeah, digital stalking and identity theft were themes that came up very often uh, where people who were doing the work said, you know, if someone wants to make my life difficult. Someone who is more tech savvy than I am could do it. But the community, the virtual community of sex workers that is worldwide and that lives online oftentimes has resources for workers that they can help you with. And so they can tell you how best to approach, you know, a a stalker, how best to bounce back from some kind of digital attack. And sometimes that includes, you know, literally wiping everything and starting again, or like taking your client list with you or, you know, reverse engineering who this person is that, you know, figuring out through metadata and stuff that's kind of beneath the surface, who this person is and how they figured this out. And then targeting that person specifically, because going to the cops isn't really a huge option for workers, even though especially digital workers Largely what they're engaging in is perfectly legal, but yet they all talked about the social stigma that goes along with sex work. And when interacting with the criminal justice system and specifically the institution of policing, it doesn't even matter, you know, if what you're doing is legal or not, if it's stigmatized enough, the police aren't going to help you. And so some of them have said, yeah, I had a stalking incident and I went to the police and they just looked at me confused because they didn't know what to do with me. Um, And so it wasn't until the virtual community of sex workers comes together and says, look, here is what you do if you are attacked digitally. Do workers get answers? So not only does the community provide steps to prevent those things from happening, which by the way, that was absolutely the thing that workers preferred the most, that if you can preemptively secure yourself, you should absolutely do that. But they also offer, this is what you do. If things go sideways, so digital workers specifically have to be on the lookout for new threats, because again, this is such a new, this concept of being a digital sex worker is only barely a decade old, you know, maybe a little older, depending on how you count it, but still it came up with the internet. And so having them be able to predict what they'll be facing is nearly impossible right? Because the internet is, is the Wild West. It's a new frontier. Obviously, corporations have been colonizing the internet the last few years very heavily. But it's still a place that people can go and try and do new and interesting things. And so because of that, they have to be vigilant, you know, to see a threat before it happens. But the internet is such a new place that kind of who knows the ways in which different abuses can present themselves is surprising.
0: Yeah. So it's safer in some ways, but it also introduces some unique challenges. And so, yeah, it's, it's a different world. And there are cost-benefits trade-offs with any different form of sex work, whether it's online or offline. Now, something else you talk about in your book that I think is really interesting and that we could do a whole (laughs) several hour long podcast about is the intersection of race and sex work. So I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about some of the things that you learned from speaking with people when you were putting the book together in terms of differences and how people of different racial backgrounds might conceptualize sex work or describe what they do.
1: Yeah, and this gets right back to that kind of original cultural idea of what a sex worker is that, you know, Melissa Gear Grant was talking about. Like so often sex work is framed as an issue for communities of color or, you know, people in poverty, those seem to be, or, you know, people with uh, drug abuse issues, those seems to be the three big intersections. But what I found is that the sample for my book was overwhelmingly white. And again, going in as a novice, I was surprised Uh, Because that's the the view I had. I had that overarching cultural view of like, this is the way things are. And it's not until you like really get into it that you go, oh, this isn't the way things are. So one of the interesting things about uh, sex work and race is that the people who were willing to talk to me were people who were admittedly privileged and saying, I feel comfortable talking to you, whereas someone else might not be comfortable revealing themselves, because maybe they have more to lose. Maybe they have more of a stigma on them being a sex worker than me. Maybe, you know, by exposing themselves just for an interview, it might create more problems for them. So I did know early on that the people that I was talking to, there was a bit of a a network bias. And that network bias was that only people who felt confident enough in their their life station, as it were, to open up and talk about their experiences are going to talk to me. But that means that I am missing a few people. Now, I did, when I would speak with people, I would say, hey, do you know other workers who would be willing to speak to me? And they would say, Oh yeah, I do. And like any other qualifications. And I would say, yeah, like if you happen to know any workers who are more stigmatized workers from different racial backgrounds, uh, you know, just in a different situation than you are, I would like to talk to them just so I could get a variety. But when I would talk to workers of color specifically, they would say, yes, I am comfortable talking to you, but be aware that I am aware that, racial privilege plays a role in who can be out and who can't be out. So again, most of the people I talked to were not only were they white, but they were also most of them college graduates and most of them earned at least a middle-class, if not better lifestyle. So race and sex work is inexorably tied together, especially in the previous research. But again, when we intersect with that research, it's almost always when, sex workers encounter the criminal justice system. Who's more likely to be arrested, a white worker or a black worker? And the sad, sad truth is a black worker is more likely to be caught and to be arrested, and if they are arrested, to be charged. And so the workers who talk to me, they would say, yeah, I understand that coming out and being vocal is a slight risk for me, but it might be a much greater risk for someone else. And it does think that the flip side of that coin then is also true, right? The flip side of the coin is we have the cultural image that sex work is an issue for communities of color and, you know, impoverished communities and places with drug abuse. But yet the flip side would be that, well, we're just not looking at the people who are white, privileged, college educated, making a middle-class lifestyle and not having any run-ins with bad clients or not having any run-ins with the criminal justice system. These people exist and not only do they exist after writing a book about it, I would say they're a healthy portion of the population. We have no way of predicting the overall population of sex workers. But from what I'm seeing, there's a shitload of people who don't fit into that cultural expectation that we have so often, that so often intersects with race.
0: Yeah, and I think everything you were saying here goes back to the earlier discussion about the oppression paradigm and the empowerment paradigm. And, you know, this issue of network bias is an important one in sex work research because who you're talking to is going to influence the outcomes that you're going to find in the work. And I find that in a lot of the work in the oppression paradigm, they're specifically only talking to street workers And oftentimes people who have been arrested and are financially desperate and other things like that, and you're necessarily going to find a lot more negative outcomes in those cases. And then if you look at research in the empowerment paradigm, they're often talking to people where it's chosen and they have that greater control and autonomy. And so I think part of it is that you're just dealing with these different populations here.
1: Exactly. To that end, yeah, when the network bias of my book when I noticed it, I started asking workers, like, tell me about the people who aren't in the room right now. Tell me about the people who I'm not reaching. Because at least you have something better to say in their stead than I do. And that was always amazingly helpful because many of the workers, especially the white workers, didn't exactly want to come out and talk about privilege, right? Like they want to, Kind of like you want to talk about it using kind of guarded language. And that's fine because we all do that. But it's like, I, I, even I was like, I want that guarded language because I want to be able to talk about who aren't we talking about right now. And they would say, yeah, I have more opportunities. I'm able to stay safer. But the most important part of those interactions was they would always, always, always end with, and that's what I want for others. I live a life that's relatively safe and I am well paid for what I do and I feel like I have agency and choice and I want that for everyone, not just for me. And I found that to be incredibly important uh, because they were then expressing the ideals of their own culture, the culture of sex workers.
0: Yeah. These are such important points. Thanks for sharing all of this, Kurt. I look forward to continuing our conversation in the next episode and doing a deeper dive into digital sex work.
1: Yay!
0: (laughs) (laughs) Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your new book?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I am Kurt Fowler. I am a professor at Penn State Abington, uh, just outside of Philadelphia. And my book is being published by uh, NYU Publishing. So you can go to NYU.com and uh, just search for The Rise of Digital Sex Work. And that's the best place uh, to grab a copy.
0: Well, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at SexandPsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter and TikTok at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. And if you have a question you'd like me to answer on a future episode of this show, you can leave me a podcast voicemail at speakpipe.com slash psychology Thanks again for listening. Until next time.